0: Please join me in prayer. Heavenly Father and gracious God, we bow in your presence. ask you to take my mouth and speak through it. Take our minds and think through them. Take our hearts and set them on fire with love for your Son, Jesus Christ our Lord, in whose name we pray. Amen. Amen. So what does the real Jesus want us to understand about ourselves and himself this Lent? That's my question. What does the real Jesus want us to understand about ourselves and himself this Lent? Now every word in that question is carefully chosen. Notice I use the phrase, the real Jesus. Just a word about that before we launch into the text It's very important to use the language of the real Jesus because we have a problem. If you read about what's happening in our culture right now, Jesus is in, spirituality is in. In fact, one of the trendiest things to be is spiritual but not religious. People like Jesus. But I keep having these conversations with my friends on a regular basis that go like this. Somebody is expressing sort of a preliminary interest in Christianity in the church, and the person comes into their office, you know, kind of on the seeker mode, and the conversation goes on something like this. Well, let me just ask you a question. If I think about becoming a Christian, actually become a Christian, would I, and then then there's a blank that gets filled in, and it's a checklist, and it goes something like this. Would I have to believe X, Y, Z? Would I have to do A, B, C? Would I have to not do D, E, F? Et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Now, do you notice what the person is doing? They're creating a Jesus who, very conveniently, has absolutely no impact on their life. In fact, it's a Jesus constructed in their own image. Ta-da! Well, that's not the Jesus that you get. Part of the reason that we pay such attention to the text is we're trying to give you a Jesus who comes on his own terms. He's not safe, but he's good, and he comes on his own terms. And so we're constantly trying to give you the real Jesus. I'll never forget being in graduate school and just on one particular day reading through the Gospels just as a whole, which is a great exercise. And I was just overcome on this particular day with the fact that everywhere Jesus went, he was in conflict He was in conflict with the demonic. He was in conflict with his family. He was in conflict with the religious authorities. He was in conflict with the disciples. And this was my one overriding impression. Jesus was always in all these fights and arguments and conflicts. And I sat there and I thought to myself, when was the last time I got in an argument with Jesus? Wasn't a very comfortable question. The answer was it was a long time. Very uncomfortable question. But see, that's what happens when you deal with Jesus on his own terms is you get a Jesus who can challenge you, can raise questions about you, can be swimming in a particular direction and say to you, hey, you're you're actually swimming up my stream. I want you to go downstream with me. Are we all together? So the Jesus that we're interested in is the real Jesus, the Jesus who exists in his own reality, who's his own person, who gets to define his lordship and his ministry and himself on his own terms. All right, that's just by way of introduction. Now let's look at Romans and let's consider the question. Turn to Romans 5, if you'd be so kind, and I simply want to make two observations to kind of launch us into Lent, if I may. The first observation is about us and the second is about our Lord. So first of all, Really bad news about us, we are sinners who sin. Sin is about what we do and who we are. Look at your text and look at verse 12. It's very clear. This is a theme throughout the letter. In Romans 3, Paul says in a kind of a spectacular paragraph... All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. But just in case we missed it in chapter 3, here he is again in chapter 5. Death, see where I am at the second half of the verse 12. Death spread to all men because all sinned. Inclusive all. We all sinned. The proto-sin described in Genesis 3, one of the many ways you can think about it is if you and I were there, we would have done it the same way. Maybe not in every particular exactly the same way, but the basic... Outline of what happened would have been exactly what we did. We have the anti-God allergy, as J.I. Packer calls it, inside us, which is called sin. Now, I want to make sure that as we begin, we think properly about this category of sin. And we're in the South, and we have a problem, and that is sin is defined almost all the time by the church as what we do, which is good, because in the confession, we confess that we have sinned against you in thought, word, and deed. And there's that word deed. But the trouble is, if it's caricatured, it it goes something like this: I don't uh, smoke, drink, or chew, or spend time with girls that do, right? And you get this, but you get this, you get this kind of. What I want you to notice about it is it's all externalized. And it's all about what you do. And what I want to make sure that we understand, because Genesis 3 is presented every Lent, every three years at the beginning on purpose to get us kind of to look in the mirror for reality therapy, is that that proto-sin is a mirror of the reality of our sinfulness. And it's two things, not one thing. It's not just acts, it's being. And I want you to think about it. I don't want to quote Augustine to you. Augustine says something about that first sin that's very important. So first of all, let's get the sin clear in our minds, right? So God gives them, you remember, everything. It's really pretty spectacular. Everything. Every tree, every shrub, they've got everything. And there's only one exception, just this tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Don't eat that. So they've got, you get this picture of overwhelming abundance, abundance, overwhelming provision, overwhelming goodness, And there's just this one restriction. And Satan, and notice how he's described as crafty or clever, takes that picture and entirely inverts it. So the whole focus is on the one restriction instead of the abundant provision. Did God really say? And they take the fruit and they eat it, which means it's an act of rebellion. It's an act of usurpation. They are taking over the uh, running of the universe on their own terms. Up your nose, God, with a rubber hose. Thank you very much. We know better than you. We can reign better than you. We usurp your authority, and we become gods ourselves. Here's your C.S. Lewis quote. You knew it was coming. Fallen man, in other words, is not simply an imperfect creature who needs improvement. He is a rebel who must lay down his arms. That's very good. It's a sin of rebellion, okay, and it's an act. But what I want you to understand is something that Augustine points out that's absolutely essential, especially for us in the 21st century in the West, and it's this. There's something that has to happen before the act without which the act doesn't happen. And if you don't understand that, you don't understand the fullness of the doctrine of sin as the Bible wants you to. So here's Augustine And then we'll tease it out a bit. Our first parents, he says, fell into open disobedience, listen, because they were already secretly corrupted. See, the trouble with the story is we read it on fast forward instead of slowing down the film. And there's a giant gap between did God really say and looking at the fruit and processing it and then taking the fruit and eating it on behalf of both of them. There's an enormous dynamic between the words that go in, the thinking that goes on, the process they go through and before the action. They were already secretly corrupted before they did the action. For the evil act had never been done had not an evil will preceded it. And what is the origin of evil will but pride? For pride is the beginning of sin. And what is pride but the craving for undue exaltation? And this is undue exaltation. When the soul abandons him to whom it ought to cleave as an end and becomes an end to itself. This happens when man becomes his own satisfaction. Listen, the devil would not have ensnared man in the open and manifest sin of doing what God had forbidden had not man already begun to live for himself By craving to be more, man became less. And by aspiring to be self-sufficing, he fell away from the one and the only one who truly suffices him. In other words, human beings were created to live before God and for God and with God forever. And instead of curving up and out to God in gratitude for all that he, he gave them, they curved down and in on themselves and they decided as they processed the devil's question, that they would stand in judgment of God instead of the other way around. But their wills and their hearts had to be involved before the act. Therefore, sin is both being and action. It's who we are and what we do. It's even there in the Ten Commandments, if you think about them carefully in that last one. You ever thought about that, the 10th one? They are all explicit actions as you go through. Of course, it's meant to speak to far more of that. But that last one, don't covet, that's very clear. <laughs> that's, 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 a, that's a motivation. That's a, you, can't, you can't see, you might be able to see your own, but you, it's very hard to see covetousness. It's an internal thing. So sin is who we are and what we do. Now, before I go flying past, I have to pause and tell you something, speaking of more reality therapy, and that is what I've just told you, that you are sinners who sin, both who you are and what you do is sinful in God's eyes. That's a really, really unpopular, unhappy thing to say in any culture, but in ours, it's nuts. So two examples of just how far upstream we're swimming at this point in the sermon. One, one of my favorites from church history, and then the other from 20th century American culture. The first one, which I adore, is from a period of time in the late 17th and early 18th century, no, late 18th and early 19th century, so late 1700s and early 1800s, and... Um, we're in the period of time when William Wilberforce, who's one of the great heroes of the faith, is working hard to try to combat slavery, and he has something called the Clapham sect. And part of what goes on in the Clapham sect is people are actually discovering what the gospel actually means, that Jesus died for their sins, and they're hearing things like the Comfort words and they're being converted. One of the people who's converted is the Countess of Huntington, who's a very upper-crust lady in uh, late 1700s and early 1800s England, and the Countess of Huntington, wonderful person that she is, when she becomes converted, she won't keep it to herself. So she keeps inviting her friends to do things like going to hear John Wesley and George Whitfield. So she writes all her friends, doesn't matter who it is, she's indiscriminate, she just keeps showering her friends as far as the eye can see with these invitations. And one of the things that we have is some of the responses that she got uh, to some of her invitations. And one of them is really an all-time classic, in my view. And it is from... The Duchess of Buckingham, in response to her invitation. Now, keep in mind, before I read this, this is simply an invitation to go hear George Whitfield, right? So this is the equivalent of, uh, I would like you to go to my worship uh, community to hear so and so, right? That's not exactly, you know, really big ask, right? So here we go with her wonderful statement in the 19th century, in the 1800s. It's just so illustrative of how upstream this is. Listen, it is monstrous to be told that you have a heart as sinful as the common wretches that crawl the earth. This is highly insulting and offensive, and I cannot but wonder how your ladyship should relish any sentiment so much at variance with high rank and good breeding. Boom! <laughs> I don't want to hear about all this sinful pockycock right? She wouldn't even, she was threatened by the invitation itself because it was to associate with those lowlifes, not up here on the upper crust, with we who know better. What a statement. It is monstrous. Well, you can take it up with the Lord later, (laughs) Lady Huntington. Now, what about our culture? It's all about mirror, mirror on the wall, who's the greatest of them all? We're all about the self, we're all about the culture of narcissism, we're all about expressive individualism. We've got Us magazine at supermarket checkouts, and it's incredible the focus on people who are the arbiters of all reality, the center of the universe, and telling people all the time, you are so great. If I hear one more person say about education, the heart of it has to be telling a student, you can do anything you want to do, I will jump through a window. It's not true. You actually can't climb Mount Everest when you're 12 years old. Just wanted to pass that on. <laughs> now, I want to make sure that you're in touch with the degree to which our culture is out to lunch on this topic. We are so overconfident as a culture in the West in general, in America in particular. One recent survey did college professors and their teaching skills, you ready? 94% of college professors surveyed said they were above average. (laughs) A survey of high school students found 70% of them have above average leadership skills. I should have you guess on below average, 2%. Here's one of the more convicting statistics for me personally. In the 1950s, they asked high school seniors this question, do you think you're a very important person? Right, 1950s, I should have you guess. 12% said, yeah. In the 90s, same question. Ready? 80%. It's, It's stunning. David Brooks, writing about this, said, just look at the anecdotal evidence. It would be unthinkable when I was growing up to see a baseball player celebrate himself in the batter's box after a home run swing. Now it's not unusual at all. I mean, I watch these football games and watch these guys go nuts in the end zone, and when I was growing up, you just couldn't do that. I mean, it's all about them. When I was growing up, it was all about the team and the university and the game and the greater good and all this other stuff. No, 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 no. They're giving each other high fives and doing their own pantomimes, and it's all about, you know, who can do the better pantomime. A few decades ago, pop singers didn't compose anthems to their own prowess. Now those songs dominate the charts. One of my all-time favorites, in addition to all those, is... The fact that if you actually study the data, it's very clear college students are spending less time than ever studying. If you look at the GPA, guess where it is? Higher. Houston, we have a problem. How could that be? college students are studying less than ever and have higher grade points than ever. It's because we want to hear mirror, mirror on the wall. We're the greatest of them all. 75% of Americans apparently think that they're above average drivers. Have you been on the road? It's crazy. It's not true. So we are sinners and we sin, it's who we are and what we do, that's point one, you with me so far? So really bad news about us, okay, point two, back to the text, it's a great passage for so many other things, but it's a really lovely statement of the gospel itself in verse 16, and the free gift, look at verse 16, is not like the result of one man's sin, which we just talked about, for the judgment following one man's trespass brought condemnation, but the free gift following many trespasses brought, and there's that word, justification, The grace of God, he says, above in verse 15, and the free gift by the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ. And earlier on in chapter 5, he says it very succinctly. While we were still weak at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. That's the gospel in a single sentence. Christ died for the ungodly. In chapter 4, he says the gospel is the justification of the ungodly. So the first thing I said to you was, we are ungodly. The second thing I want to say to you is, Christ, by his redeeming work, has made right our relationship with God by who he is and what he did on our behalf. Now, that word justification is from a law court. You don't end up in a law court unless things are wrong and they have to be set right. It always involves repaying a debt of some kind, whether it's personal damage debt and fine or some kind of damages to somebody's house or somebody's car or somebody's reputation. But there's always a payment of a debt that's involved in restoring a right relationship, and our situation is no different. Here's Peter Kreft, the Roman Catholic philosopher and theologian. Mercy goes beyond justice, he says. It does not undercut it. If I forgive you the $100 you owe me, it means that I must use $100 of my own money to pay my creditors. I cannot really make you $100 richer without making myself $100 poorer. If the debt is objectively real, it must be paid. And if my mercy repays your debt, then I must pay it. Listen, this is the reason why Christ had to die, why God could not simply say, forget it. Instead, he said, forgive it. And that meant if he did not pay it, it would never have been done. And he paid it himself. That's justification in a single image. It's just as if we never sinned. You can think of the word justification and just break it down. Just as if we never sinned. So that when God looks at us, he doesn't see our sin, he sees Jesus because when God looks at Jesus on the cross, he doesn't see us, but in a moment in time, he sees our sin by the power of the Holy Spirit. That's justification. The making right of sinners in relationship with the Holy God through the sacrifice of Christ. That's the good news of justification, and it comes through the love of God and the mercy of God. Did you catch that? The emphasis on, verse 15, the grace of God and the free gift of God's grace. So two stories about um, justification for you. One from... um, England in the 16th century and one from England in the 17th century. This first one I've shared with you before, but I'm very fond of it because Elizabeth I is such an interesting character. If you've ever seen the movie Elizabeth or if you've read about her, um, she she led a very interesting life in lots of ways, but one of the most interesting is most of her life, there were a lot of people all the time trying to kill her. Now, I don't know about you, but if you have a whole bunch of people trying to kill you, you have to change the, the way that you live. So whenever she did stuff, she always would survey, she was always being careful, she was always looking for conspiracies, she was always looking for possible dangers, and this is the story of one day when she was getting dressed in the morning, and what she did was she sent her, her servants into the queen's boudoir ahead of her to check out to see if anybody's in there, and there was a male page who secreted himself in the queen's boudoir, and he had a poignard, and he was going to use it to stab the queen, and they called in the closet, dead to rights. Now, if you remember Elizabeth, she had fiery red hair. She also had a fiery, passionate heart, right? There's people that you don't want to face in judgment. She has to be near the top of the list, right? So they catch this woman, cold, dead to rights, and she's in her closet because she wants to kill Elizabeth. She throws herself down on her knees, and she begs the queen to have compassion on her and to show her her grace. Queen Elizabeth looks at her coldly and quietly and says this, in response to the plea, if I show you my grace, what promise will you make for me to me for the future? The woman looked up and according to report, said, grace that hath conditions, grace that is fettered by precautions, is not grace at all. Now I don't know how in the world she found herself possessed to say something like that to someone like that, but I don't know how she survived. But Queen Elizabeth caught it in a moment. She said, uh, you're right, I will pardon you of my grace. And they led her away, a free woman. And history says that from that moment on, Queen Elizabeth had no more faithful, devoted servant than that woman who had originally intended to take her life. That is exactly the way the grace of God works in the life of sinners. We become faithful servants of God, and the heart of our life as Christians is gratitude. That's one story. I like that one very much because it really gives the the image of justification really well. This other one is less famous but it's really wonderful in its own way. And it's, it's called the story the Old Curfew, and this is 17th century England, so we're English Civil War period of time. We're Oliver Cromwell, and lots of unrest, and lots of soldiers, and lots of uh, problems of various kinds. And this is the way that reads. A young soldier, condemned to die for an offense, was told that the time of his death was fixed, and I quote, at the ringing of the curfew. Right? So you're condemned to die, and all that has to happen is the town crier has to cry out and the bell has to ring. Naturally, such a doom would be fearful and bitter to one in the years of his hope and prime. But to this unhappy youth, death was doubly terrible because he was soon to marry a beautiful young lady whom he'd loved all his life. The lady ardently loved him in return and and had used her utmost efforts to help him avert his fate, pleading with judges and even finally with Cromwell himself for her beloved, all in vain. The hour for the execution draws near. The preparations are completed. The officers of the law bring forth the prisoner. They wait till the sun's getting ready to, to set. They get ready to signal the bell tower. And to the wonder of everybody, there's no noise. Only one human being, as the story goes at that moment, knew the reason. The poor girl, half wild with the thought of her lover's death, had rushed unseen up the winding stairs, climbed the ladders into the belfry loft, and seized the tongue of the bell. The old sexton was in his place, prompt to the faithful moment. He threw his weight upon the rope, and the bell, obedient to his practiced hand, reeled and swung to and fro in the tower. But the brave girl kept her hold, and there was no sound from the bell's metallic lips. Again and again, the sexton drew the rope, but with desperate strength, the young heroine held on. Every moment made her position more precarious. Every sway of the mighty bell threatened to fling her through the high tower, but she would not let go. Finally, the brave girl descended from the belfry, wounded and trembling. She hurried from the church to the place of execution. Cromwell was there, and just as he was sending to demand why the bell was silent, she saw him, and I quote, and her brow, lately white with snow, glows with hope and courage now. At his feet, she told her story, showed her hands all bruised and torn, and her young face, still haggard with the anguish it had worn, touched Cromwell's heart with sudden pity, lit his eyes with misty light, Go, said Cromwell, your lover lives. Curfew shall not ring tonight. Now one of the greatest preachers the South has ever known, L.G. Broughton, speaking about this story, says this. Think you that this young man, redeemed by the sacrifice of his lover from the clutches of the law, would regard any service to the fair woman who redeemed him a hardship? He would have willingly laid down his life any second for her. Now think of another story of love. The scene is laid at Calvary. Jesus is upon the cross. The brow, once crowned with glory, is now crowned with thorns. The hands, often outstretched in love and mercy, are now pinioned to the cross. The heart that throbbed and ached with human sorrow is now pierced with a spear. Oh, it is a sad moment in the history of the world. The earth trembles, the mountains quake, the sun veils itself in darkness, for God's son is dying. But listen what he says. It is finished, it is finished, it is finished. The great plan of redemption, born in God's heart of love, has now received its finishing touch, and God and the world stand reconciled. It doesn't get much better than that bloodied by the bell she was in every conceivable way but she would not let go that's our lord for us that's justification in a single image she took all that for him so that he would live she loved him that much and god loves us much more we all together really bad news about us really good news about christ now i'm going to wrap it up with two simple questions and i'm done I I have to confess, as I conclude, I struggle with Lent every year and it's gotten harder to preach in Lent because, I don't know if you've noticed this, but Lent has become about techniques. Lent has become about us and about spiritual disciplines and about what we do. So you hear the conversations they go like this, well, what did you, in fact, my, I got my hair cut yesterday and this is one of the questions I was asked. What are, at least it was this one, what are you taking up for Lent? That was good, I was glad to hear that rather than what are you giving up? Of course, that came later. But, but, the, but the point is, if you notice, it, it, there's a dangerous part of that, which is it's all about us and what we do and how we do it and how we're going about it. And if, you, if you're not careful, brothers and sisters, all that does is turn Christianity into a new law. Where's the grace in that, right? It it, it can very easily turn into try harder, and newsflash, that doesn't work. It never has and never will. So the first thing I want to say is this. If you think about what that first point is trying to tell you, It's trying to tell you something very basic and very simple about how you approach the world. And the way that I want to go about this is this. I like coming back to this from time to time. The Lord's Prayer is not simply a prayer that we pray every day. It's a pair of glasses that we put on as Christians through which to see the world. It's full of the theology that we should live by. So think about the Lord's Prayer from the perspective of this sermon. Think about this. Every day in the Lord's Prayer, when you pray that prayer, you pray this. Lead us not into temptation, and deliver us from evil. Now, just think about that. What does that say about you and me when we pray that prayer? It says this. Left to ourselves, we're sunk. The world is dangerous. There's a devil out there. There are potholes out there. It's tricky. We could slip up. Oh, no. No. This is not the message of our culture. This is, you need to be full of self-mistrust, as my professor at Regent College used to say. Self-mistrust is one of the key ingredients in Christian life. It's about your awesome vulnerability, frailty, and inadequacy, and mine too. That's my first point. So I offer you the challenge of letting God teach you self-mistrust in the good sense that it will make you ever more dependent on him and his spirit. You can't make it through the day on your own, even as a Christian. You need the Holy Spirit and his leadership and his shelter and his help. We all together? The second thing is this, and I thank Jake for the song because it's perfect. Um, His mercy is more. That's exactly where I want it to end, so wherever you are, touche to you. you. You nailed it when you realize how great God is and what an awful rebel we are, what you get is his mercies are new every morning. And the book of Isaiah puts it this way. It says something really interesting about our sin. It says, even our righteousness is as filthy rags. You ever thought about that? That means even when I do the right thing, there's still contaminations in it that are full of my own motivations and my own ego and so even when we do the right thing we're still dirty in God's sight and we're completely clean we're completely whole we're completely right and his mercy is the heart of the Christian life And so here's my personal challenge to you. I thought about this morning. I don't often make it quite this personal, but I actually have a very specific personal challenge. I want you to do me a personal favor this week when you get out of bed in the morning. I want the first thing that you think about to be this. Three things I want you to think. I want you to think there's a world that you have, that's point one. There's a life that you have with which you're in the world, that's point two. And there's a new life that you have in Jesus Christ not simply for this life, but for the life to come. You got me? So when you get out of bed, before you even pull the sheets off your body, you have a world to live in that God didn't need to create. You have a life that you've been given that God didn't need to give you. And you have a new life in Jesus Christ, both for this world and the next. And you didn't deserve any. And in Jesus Christ, you get all three. No wonder the book of Lamentations says the steadfast love of the lord never ceases his mercies never come to an end they are new every morning and if you live lent from the perspective of the mercy of god and the degree to which you're mercied then you're getting at i think the right way to approach all these challenges so i give you two simple illustrations of the way that we're to be sent into lent one is bad news about ourselves we're sinful and we sin because we're sinners And Jesus Christ did all that is necessary for our life and our salvation. In Jesus' name, amen.